Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Thank you for indulging me for the seven or 10 days I took off between episodes at the end of the summer. I wanted to start by appreciating the response to my last episode, which is the episode that looks at all of Michael Keaton's scenes as Ray Nicolette in two films by two different directors, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown and Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. People really seem to dig these kind of special episodes. I did another one with all the scenes from Paul Newman in Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, and I did the first one was all of Sean Penn's scenes as Jeff Spicoli. So people seem to like the kind of, you know, less straightforward episodes. Now, my ulterior motive in doing the Ray Nickel episode, as I believe I mentioned, was that I was hoping that someone out there is going to get this episode in the hands of one Michael Keaton so that he would come onto the podcast. I have a movie I want to talk to him about. The excellent film, Clean and Sober, starring Michael Keaton. And I think what was his first dramatic turn, which is one of the interesting things about that movie, but maybe I'll just do the movie on my own if I don't hear from Mike. But anyway, someone out there, do your part. Get that episode in the hands of Michael Keaton Douglas, as he's known on Instagram. Before I move on to some subsequent episodes in the next few weeks of films I've got teed up, notably, I'm going to do The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a landmark neo-noir crime film of the 70s, which I had a complicated relationship with and recently had a breakthrough. That's what I wanted to do the episode about. And also coming up by your vote, much to my chagrin, popular demand, Albert Brooks's Lost in America, which I love, don't get me wrong, but I posted a quiz on, or what's not a quiz, what's it called? Uh, a poll on the show's Instagram account. I said, which of these two Albert Brooks movies should I do an episode about? Lost in America or Modern Romance? Now, I want to do Modern Romance. I love Lost in America, but it's widely discussed. It's available on Criterion, which is good for an episode, don't get me wrong. But Modern Romance, man, it's, it's got so many great scenes. I really wanted to do that, but I thought I'd put a vote to the people now. Of course, I think 81% of the respondents voted for Lost in America. So being the contrarian that I am, I was like, fuck that. I'm going to do modern romance all the more because people don't want it. But after a few nights sleep on it, I realized, hey, I'm in the service business here. You get what you want. So I did order the criterion of Lost in America. I'm going to work my way through the special features. I'll be doing that coming up in the next few weeks. Now, today, I wanted to spend a little more time with the song and movie across 110th Street, which was referenced in my Jackie Brown episode. I talked at length um, uh, about how kind of, not brave isn't the right word, what a strong choice it was for Tarantino to use the song, the Bobby Womack song, Across 110th Street, as the very first sound you hear in Jackie Brown. It's used at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, both over 
wordless scenes of Jackie Brown. And we'll talk a little bit about how it's used once we get into the song. But the song originates from a black exploitation film, I believe from 1972, uh, of the same name. And that's how the song came to be written by Bobby Womack, was that he was contracted to do the soundtrack for this action crime slash black exploitation film starring Yafet Kodo, Anthony Quinn, Anthony Franciosa, Paul Benjamin, and others. So I want to talk about the film, and I want to use the song as the delivery mechanism for both of those conversations. I'm also talk a little bit about Bobby Womack because I've long loved this song, but delving into the episode for Jackie Brown, it allowed me to go a little further. So over the summer, I read Bobby Womack's autobiography. I've watched a few documentaries about him. And wow, what a fascinating, tortured, compelling show business life he lived. And what a seminal part of American popular music history he was and touched. And I'll talk about that through listening to the song 110th Street and talking about some of the autobiographical details that Bobby Womack put into the lyrics of the song and using those lyrics as a jumping off point to talk about some of the more amazing things that occurred through the course of his life until his death in 2014. So let's start there. I'll play a little of the song in pieces here and sort of give you some of my thoughts as we go along. Okay, that intro section, the instrumental section, is all kind of presaging what's about to unfold in the song. It's a section that's aware of what the song is about to contain, and it's preparing us with some emotional cues. The things that I get from that part are a sense of lived-in experience is about to come, some hard-fought tales of survival, some truth from the streets, how it is instead of how we'd like it to be. And in this bass line and in that ticking countdown of the hi-hat cymbal notes, in the get ready for something feeling of this chiming cyclical ride cymbal pattern, and finally that dramatic staccato multi-beat string section which leads us into the first verse. I think all of that contains the multitudes that the song is going to contain. I just want to play, let's play it again. This bass line is fantastic, by the way. That's the hi-hat 
symbol. So that's such a great anticipatory section. And this is the part that's used in Jackie Brown, where Pam Greer is, is on the people mover in LAX, and she's wearing her flight attendant uniform. And it's also used at the end as she drives away from the events of the film, from the successful caper to separate Ordell from his money, and to separate herself from Max, which she has ambivalent feelings about, which flit across her face again as this part of the song plays. She's leaving behind. She's starting over again, something that she referenced earlier in the film as a particularly fraught fear of hers as a 45-year-old black woman. The events of the film have transpired when the song is used at the end, and the events of the film have yet to begin when it's used in the opening. And this is why the song is such a structural fit for the film Jackie Brown, even though, as I said in the episode about the film, this song is 100% New York and Harlem, in quotes, and the events of Jackie Brown are 100% Los Angeles. But there are hints in the film. When Max Cherry goes into her apartment, there are these wonderful sepia-toned black and white photographs framed on the wall of Jackie's apartment. It's clearly young Pam Greer, probably real family photos. To me, this hints a bit at Jackie herself. Maybe she's once from Harlem. You know, maybe like many Angelinos, she arrived there from somewhere else. Maybe she did whatever she had to do to survive, which we'll hear in the song. She certainly does whatever she has to do to survive in the film itself. This song, as it's used, meets her at the moment in her life where she's at. And at the end, it sees her off to what's next. And I think that the mournful, cautionary sense of the song, the emotional underpinning of the song and its performance, and Bobby Womack's vocals particularly, it fits in both of these instances. And that's the genius of its use, even though, as I said in the episode, you could very easily look at it and think, well, Quentin, why are we using such a New York song for such a Los Angeles film? But after that, we're getting into the first verse. And this is where things become interesting in terms of how songs inter, interlace with the lives of the writers and singers. So here's the first verse. I was the third brother of five Doing whatever I had to do to survive I'm not saying what I did was all right Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day -day fight down so long, nothing cost my mind. But I knew there was a better way of life, and I was just trying to find. You don't know what you do until you put on a pressure. Okay, so that verse um, is incredible because it mimics a lot of Bobby Womack's life. Bobby Womack was the third brother of five. He did whatever he had to do to survive, as did his family. He was born in Cleveland. His father uh, was a steel worker. 
and he had five, he had four other brothers. There were five in five brothers and his mother and father living in the slums of Cleveland. And he talks a lot in his autobiography of how poor they were, sharing a bed with all of his brothers. Uh, but his father was musical. His father was, his father was named Friendly. And Friendly played music. He was a minister. Um, and he trained up his sons to become gospel singers. And the church was a big part of their life. Her, their mother played uh, music in the church. She sang in the church choir. And there are a bunch of great little anecdotes about the father sort of telling his sons, you know, when I'm at work, don't touch that guitar. And of course, Bobby being the one kid who would touch the guitar and play the guitar and supposedly one evening broke a string and tried to replace it with a shoelace, not knowing any better. And Wikipedia says that after Friendly deduced that Bobby, who was in fact missing a shoelace, had broken the string, he then took an interest in the kid's interest in music. And so he organized a gospel group. And through a variety of local performances, this group came to Sam Cooke, Sam Cooke's attention. Sam Cooke, huge rhythm and blues star, pop music star of the 50s and the 60s, tragically killed, life cut short, fascinating guy. But Bobby's life mimics this first verse. I was the third brother of five doing whatever I had to do to survive. I'm not saying what I did was all right. Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day -day fight. So in here is contained a lot of the material, the backstory I think that we don't know about Jackie Brown in the movie. Of course, in the book based on Elmore Leonard, she's a white woman in Florida, not a black woman in Los Angeles. But again, that's part of why this song is a fit because I think it speaks to a hypothetical backstory for the character of Jackie Brown in the film. In the second part of the first verse when he says, been down so long, getting up didn't cross my mind. Now, I wonder if this is a reference to the seminal 1966 Paul Farina novel, Been Down So Long, Looks Like Up to Me. I think every aspiring hippie, certainly in my generation of the 80s, encountered this book. I don't know if Bobby had ever encountered the book, but Bobby was definitely of and around the social consciousness movement of the 60s, the civil rights movement. And it's not impossible that either that phrase existed before uh, Paul Farina took it for his novel. Maybe it comes from the black community or the church or uh, spirituals or the blues. I don't know. But the sense also in this second part here, but I knew there was a better way of life that I was just trying to find. You don't know what you'll do until you're put under pressure across 110th Street is a hell of a tester. This sets up things that are happening in the film of 100, across 110th Street. But these parts resonate within Bobby's life. He uh, had some success as a group with his brothers playing gospel music, but at the time, they're kids, and in the late 50s, you know, R&B starts coming out, and they hear music that is 
unlike gospel music. It contains secular emotions and sexuality and different types of sentiments that they respond to being the next generation. But the father was not having this. But the boys wanted to do R&B and they stepped forward and told their father this and he kicked them out of the house. He was a very serious, God-fearing man. And I think it took, took Bobby some years to, to mend those fences with his father. But what happened was that Sam Cooke ended up bringing the boys to LA and gave them a new name. And he called them the Valentinos. And he kind of became their father figure and their business mentor in the business of show. They had a hit which became a much bigger hit for the Rolling Stones. That's as iconic an early rock and roll song as you'll ever find. And um, written by Bobby Womack. Let me see. I want to make sure he wrote that. Yeah, he wrote, it's written with, by Bobby Womack and his sister-in-law, Shirley Womack. And the Stones... I think Sam Cooke pitched that to the Stones. And they covered it. And it became one of their first big hits. Well, baby used to stay out all night long. She made me cry. She done me wrong. She hurt my eyes open. That's no lie. So, you know, contained here is kind of the fascinating history of American popular music and the co-opting of black music by white artists and fascinating kind of sociological things to speculate on here, you know, such as why do original songs such as the one written by Bobby Womack and performed by he and his brothers in the Valentinos, why isn't that song the song that becomes as big as the Rolling Stones cover of that song? And a lot of this, of course, has to do with, uh, you know, societal institutional pressures, the music business. But here you have one of the earliest examples of that in such a stark way. Bobby himself would tell the story many times about how he hated the concept when Sam Cooke pitched them the idea that the Stones would do this song. But, and he remained irritated about it 
he says, up until the point where he got the first check <laughs> relating to the Stones cover. And then he says, in a funny BBC biographical feature, he says, and I've spent the next 50 years trying to get him to do another one of my songs. The Stones have been uh, very good to Bobby Womack. They've, they, I believe, brought him out on some tours. They, uh, Ronnie Wood appears in the documentary that I mentioned on the BBC. Um, you know, they pay their respects to the artists that came before them. But it's still an interesting side note as to the life of Bobby Womack, the music of Bobby Womack. So Sam Cooke having adopted the Valentinos, essentially, not legally, but in a show business sense in Los Angeles, the next thing that happened that was so formative for Bobby Womack was he basically enrolled them in the PhD program of showbiz rock and roll performance. He put them on a bill with James Brown, James Brown, I believe at the Apollo in Harlem for a week or two weeks, multiple week stay. And here come these boys, all very young, he and his brothers. Probably the oldest is not more than 16. And they're on a bill with people like James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Sam Cooke, Muddy Waters, all these people, all these artists they're exposed to. And they're exposed to the backstage climate at a place like the Apollo in Harlem. And he writes about these experiences as formative in many ways. He saw the brutal dictatorial professionalism demanded by James Brown of his bandmates. And James Brown, of course, taking upon himself to instruct the Valentinos about everything they were doing wrong in terms of presenting themselves as a show business act. So Bobby says in this BBC documentary that, you know, in the world of gospel, you would perform your music and then you would leave the stage. And if you, if you got an ovation, you didn't come back. That wasn't done. But James Brown would stand backstage and be like, what the fuck are you doing back here? Get back on stage. Go out there and see those people. You know, he had a much highly, a much more highly attuned sense of showbiz proprietariness that he inculcated to these youngsters. Bobby also saw the sex trade up close. There's an anecdote in his book where he and his brothers lose their virginity to a prostitute. He saw drugs and alcohol abuse. He saw headliner acts who were handling fame well and who were cracking under the pressure. One of the funnier kind of more poignant moments and also I think a great little detail that I of the sort I love is and I didn't note who it was. It was a blues act. I can't remember which one it was. But one of the things that he talks about in his book, Midnight Mover, is that he saw one of these established headliner acts supplementing the money they were getting for the shows by cooking and selling food, black food, backstage to the other acts on the bill. And that this artist was like, listen, you know, you got to have multiple hustles out here. And, uh, you know, that, that's also kind of referenced and contained in the lyrics of this song, right? Like you got to do what you've got to do to survive. And that's what he saw these musicians doing. And man, wow, Sam Cooke, <laughs> that, that is a deep dive. Um, you know, Sam Cooke should be mentioned in the same breath 
as among the greatest pop songwriters of all time. Lennon McCartney, Jagger Richards, Dylan. Sam Cooke wrote songs now. In addition to having, you know, one of the greatest voices in popular music, granted. But, man, the songwriting is crazy. Um, if I played you just a few excerpts of things that Sam Cooke wrote, your mind would be blown. My mind was blown. Right? I mean, you send me. A change is going to come. Cupid, Chain Gang, Wonderful World, Another Saturday Night, Twist in the Night Away. Those are just a few of the 30 top 40 hits he had between 1957 in 1964, he also had three more after he died. Uh, but these, <laughs> these Sam Cooke songs uh, are incredible. You know, they, they're synonymous with their era. This is a change is going to come. I mean, the song in TV placements in the Sam Cooke estate alone has to continue to be incredibly lucrative. kidding uh i mean writing that song performing that song alone let alone the myriad other sam cook hits that there are i mean this guy was one of the most incredible artists who ever lived and Additionally, and I, you know, I could get in, I was going to play you a bunch of these other Sam Cooke things because probably songs you don't even th think or identify with Sam Cooke necessarily. Um, but maybe you do, like Cupid, for example. Cupid, draw back your bow and let your arrow go. My lover's heart for me, for me. I mean, these melodies, these lyrics, these performances are incredible. Of course, you know this. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be On and on and on. I mean, it goes on and on and on. He has so many songs. Now, what's fascinating, and I'm diverting a little bit into Sam Cooke because Sam Cooke is incredible and 
I needed to re-educate myself as to what a seminal and important artist he was. You know, he's also one of the first black songwriters and performers who was astute about the record business. He had a record label, which is what Bobby Womack and his brothers were assigned to. He had a music publishing company. He, and Bobby talks a lot in his book about this, that he, you know, he had his eye on the big picture here and he was not unattuned to what was going on in a business as dirty as the music business was and remains. And why this is important is because it is because of Bobby's relationship with Sam Cooke that these turns in Bobby's life start to occur because Sam Cooke was unfortunately killed in a very bizarre um, motel incident in... 1964, you know, although he was married, he was allegedly carrying on with a young lady who he had brought to a motel who fled the motel room. And as the story supposedly goes, Sam was searching for her and burst into the motel manager's office where he was shot in what was ruled to be justifiable, justifiable homicide in self-defense. Although it's been a source of conjecture ever since that, is that really what happened? Was it justifiable? Um, it wasn't a racial incident because he was in a motel that was Black-owned, and he suffered this ignominious death. And so part of the sort of Shakespearean-like tragedy of Bobby Womack's life, this thread of Shakespearean-like tragedy that would run through his many accomplishments in the music business, this is where some of the difficulty begins because what happened was that three months after Sam Cooke was killed, Bobby Womack married Sam Cooke's wife, Barbara. She was older than he was. Now, he tells this in his book and in this documentary that I watched as follows. He says that he, he took it upon himself to say, I'm going to take care of Sam's family. And the best way that I knew how to do that was to marry his his widow so that he could be on the ground keeping an eye on things. Maybe that's true, but <laughs> uh, he became a pariah in the black music business, in his own words, because as he says, this simply was not done. You did not marry your mentor's widow three months after his death. You didn't presume to assume his position in the hierarchy of the music business, black or otherwise. The audacity that this was perceived to indicate haunted him and held him back for many years. Opportunities were not given to him. His talent was denied, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is where horrible things start to occur in... Um, 
in Bobby's life. And again, as the turmoil of the 60s unfolds, because I think he marries um, Barbara in 1963, 1964. No, probably 1964, because Sam Cooke died in 64. Is that what I said? Yeah, Sam Cooke died in 64, December 64. So three months later, uh, January, probably March 1964, he marries Barbara. And they have a child, Vincent, in 1966. Now, this, this jumps ahead, this tragedy jumps ahead 20, 20 or so years because Bobby has lost um, two children and a brother to various tragic outcomes. So his firstborn son was born in 1966, Vincent. He committed suicide um, in 87, which is horrible. And Barbara herself and Sam Cooke had lost a baby in just a year before Sam was killed. Uh, she had a, a son who drowned in their family pool at 18 months. So that was in 1963. Sam is killed in 1964. Just three months later in 65, she's getting married to Bobby Womack with all of this trauma that can't have possibly been resolved. And so this is where you start to encounter in Bobby Womack's life, as you will throughout the 80s and much of the 90s, additional operatic tragedies which befall him and which in this cruel math of show business also contribute to the voice that he sings with and the experience and the world weariness that it contains in a lyric like Across 110th Street. And that's what is always so fascinating, right, about this age-old dilemma between artistry and suffering. And does suffering make you a great artist uh, or not? You know, it certainly contributes to the experience with which Bobby sings. So let's get a little bit into the first, the chorus of Across 110th Street, because it also is cinematic in a, very, in a variety of ways. Okay, so play this end of this verse. You don't know what you do until you put on the pressure. Street. You can find it all in the street. 
And now you can praise someone like Mick Jagger's vocal abilities, but there's no way he could hit that line. Um, woman trying to catch a trick on the street. Like that is sung from a place that a white artist like Mick Jagger just can't get to. I'm sorry. But in this section here, now you have a fascinating glimpse of what Bobby is putting forth as kind of the predator-prey aspect of life in the ghetto, because that's where the film Across 110th Street is taking place in Harlem amidst criminals and people simply trying to do whatever they have to do to survive. You have crabs in a barrel, people doing whatever they have to do. But in doing so, are they also contributing to the very trap they find themselves in? This chorus contains all of that in this kind of hard-won, lived-in aspects of the song's truth. He's telling us how it is for this slice of life in the ghetto. Now, of course, there's other more positive life aspects that you could highlight, but that's not what this song or the movie is about, and that's not where Bobby is singing from. And the predator prey, pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak. So a woman who under the pressures of trying to survive, is vulnerable, is being preyed upon by the pimp who is going to then turn her to his nefarious purposes. Pushers won't let the junkie go free. It's such an amazing line because the junkie dealer relationship, of course, you know, is it parasitic or symbiotic? You know, here it's, it's presented as parasitic because you have pimps pushers trying to do something to someone else. But it's just as true that the junkie won't let the pusher go free. And the third line to me is a little repetitive woman trying to catch a trick on the streets, a little repetitive to the prostitution angle of pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak, but I understand where it's coming from. But I wonder if there was maybe you could have veered off of that since you have prostitution drug abuse, like maybe there's a crime angle there that would have been a different line. But again, the way he sings that, you can't argue with. So it doesn't even matter what he's singing when he sings woman trying to catch a trick on the street, ooh baby. It's the feeling. Across 110th Street, you can find it all in the street. That's such an important part of this song. That's such an important part of the movie as well, as we'll talk about. And then the song returns again to that anticipatory buildup section that we heard at the beginning of the song, the part that's used over Pam Greer on the People Mover at the beginning of the film and in her car at the end. And what's fascinating here is after this buildup section is played again, Bobby re-enters with the second verse, but instead of the cautionary tale that the first verse contained, in the first chorus, he's now got advice and a recipe for survival, even as he remains aware of the difficulty and the pressures. And that's what we get here in the second verse. I got one more thing I'd like to talk to y'all about right now. Hey, brother! There's a better way out. Shorting that coat, shooting that dope man, you're copping out. Take my 
into the second chorus. What an amazing verse this is. Now, hey, brother, there's a better way out, snorting that coke, shooting that dope, man, you're copping out. Again, you have to put this song in the context of the 60s and the 70s, particularly the 70s, the time and the the era that the film Across 110th Street is portraying in Harlem when heroin and drug use is ravaging the community for not the last time, because this is pre-crack, but it's heroin in the 70s. And of course, the issues that the film 110th Street gets into are all about kind of, should I, is it a weird analogy to make between the Rolling Stones having a huge hit and launching you know, a 60-year dynastic rock and roll career on the back of a song written and recorded by black artists and the heroin trade in Harlem being controlled by the white Italian mafia who are using gangsters in Harlem as the conduit, the delivery mechanism to do the dirty work of the dealing. That's what the movie Across 110th Street gets into. And that's this age old story of drug dealing. And if you want to go up that ladder, you can get into some interesting places in terms of governmental involvement and awareness and all that sort of thing. Again, things that, you know, maybe people don't want to always know about. But that's what Bobby's talking about here. He's saying there's a better way out. Take my advice. It's either live or die. You've got to be strong if you want to survive. Now, this part is most fascinating to me. The family on the upper side of town would catch hell without a ghetto around. That's a fascinating line. I had to stop down and kind of really contemplate this to see what he was getting at. And I think what he's getting at, this is just my interpretation. I haven't found him talking about this line. But I think what he's getting at is a rather complex symbiosis of upper cl- of class, the class system in America, right? The family on the upper side of town would catch hell without a ghetto around. So what I think he's getting at is These people, these rich people, these rich white people on the uptown side of things are doing some heinous shit. But guess what? Society pays attention to the more salacious and easier grasped stuff going on in the ghetto. The family on the upper side of town would catch hell without a ghetto around. He's basically saying that that ghettos offer polite society something to tut-tut at while they can ignore their own complicity and involvement in a system that allows such a thing to exist in the first place. The family on the upper side of town would catch hell without a ghetto around. That's an amazing line. Incredible. In every city, you'll find the same thing going down. Harlem is the capital of every ghetto town. Help me sing it. This verse is incredible. And also, this is a verse that has the gospel influence. Um, is it, in the documentary that I mentioned, it's a little feature ad about Bobby. Uh, Chuck D says of 
Bobby Womack an amazing thing, which is so true, which is that in Bobby Womack's voice, you can hear the church and the streets. And this part where he begins this verse by saying, I got one more thing I'd like to talk to you all about right now. That's reminiscent of the church, of preachers and the ministers that were part of Bobby's home life and his formative musical experiences in the church. The use of song to communicate life lessons. And these life lessons, um, at the time that Bobby recorded this song in 1972, Um, as I said, he had gone on this journey where he'd been mentored by someone in Sam Cooke and then married Sam's widow. And, um, <laughs> and had gotten divorced from Sam Cooke's widow because, and this is the start of Bobby's autobiography, Midnight Mover. It's one of the more eye-opening starts to a book that I could remember, sort of one of the more titillating wow opening scenes for a memoir. The shorthand version is this. As I said, he's married to Barbara, who is Sam Cooke's widow. Barbara and Sam had three children, one of whom was a 17-year-old girl. You can see where this is going to go. Now, he opens the memoir being discovered in bed with... Barbara's daughter, who was 17, by Barbara, who gets a gun and chases him out of the house and into the garage, fires a shot which grazes his forehead until I believe the police can come and basically rescue him from Barbara, who was going to murder him, clearly, after finding him in bed with her 17-year-old daughter, Linda. Now, <laughs> coming as it does on the heels of Bobby's already tenuous relationship to things, based on public sentiment towards him marrying Barbara to begin with, now you have this sort of tawdry, torrid, underage romance going on. And to make it even stranger, Linda, the 17-year-old daughter, would go on to marry Bobby Womack's brother, Cecil. And they became an incredibly successful um, singing and songwriting partnership called Womack and Womack. Very successful. Uh, they did a number of songs for other artists that are very well known. And so the Womack family, the Womack brothers, had so much talent beyond just Bobby Womack, who became the best known of the Womack siblings. But Cecil Womack has an incredible track record and story as a songwriter and a producer, uh, as does Linda. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, let's see, he, Cecil died in 2013. I believe Linda's still alive. And they recorded, they, they, they uh, wrote songs that people like Eric Clapton, George Benson, Shaka Khan, Teddy Pendergrass, the Dramatics, the OJs. I mean, they were phenomenally successful in their own right. So of this tawdry relationship with Bobby, she ends up marrying Cecil and having a very long and fulfilling life and career as Womack and Womack. Just one of the additional strange details 
that populate the story of Bobby Womack. So um, I want to finish out just a little part of this song here that, that continues from this part of uh, this. So we have the second verse and then the ending of the song here. composition. You know, I can't find out a lot of information about the recording of this song um, or the multiple versions, which is a fascinating thing I wanted to get into here. So let's talk a little bit about the movie. Um, because that's what this song was composed for. Now, the movie Across 110th Street is... A, one, it's one of those curiosity things that's a bunch of different things. On the one hand, it is a pretty down and dirty, cheap and tawdry black exploitation film uh, directed by a white director, as many of them were. But on the other hand, it contains these moments and performances, predominantly from the black cast, by the way, who have credits far outstripping the material. You know, you can look at this incredible cast of, speaking of the black actors, Yafet Koto, Paul Benjamin, uh, Richard Ward, Antonio Fargus, Norma Donaldson, Gilbert Lewis, Marlene Warfield, uh, Gloria Hendry, Charles McGregor. Like these people, when you look at all their credits, they have these amazing, you know, studied at the actor's studio, were on Broadway, did Shakespeare. They did all this stuff. And in this movie, a lot of them are playing gangsters or low-level criminals. And, you know, that's typical of the era and that's typical of the reality for black actors in Hollywood at the time, if it's even changed to this date. Uh, but these were the roles that were available largely at the time. Now, this movie, I'll play a little of the trailer. This I'm gonna have to annotate this for you a little bit because it's one of those period trailers it shows you a uh, italian drug dealers counting their money in a harlem when count room three hundred thousand dollars of the mob's money and kill two cops in the process everybody is after you they they took to her bank in harlem for over three hundred thousand dollars everybody like detective captain frank metelli the way i work Gets results. That's Anthony Quinn. I'm gonna blow the whistle on you, is that it? You want my job, don't you? Go back to 1940! That's Yafet Koto. You can hear the song there, right? 
When you steal $300,000 of the mob's money, that's not robbery. That's suicide. <laughs> that's the trailer. That's the original trailer. So it is all that. Um, it's directed by Barry Shear, who is largely a television director in the 50s. And there's a lot of this that can feel a little television-like. He made a bunch of other sort of exploitation films. Uh, he did kind of the hippie film, Wild in the Streets, which is his counterculture film. He did kind of the serial killer film based on the serial killer Charles Schmid called The Todd Killings in 1971. He did A 110th Street in 72, and he made a Western in 1973 uh, called The Deadly Trackers, which he took over from Sam Fuller. So these were all kind of only middlingly received and... I think he then spent the rest of his career kind of working in television. The film is such a weird Frankenstein of 1970s stuff. It has all this black exploitation stuff and these, these scenes. Um, but then it contains incredible moments of heartbreakingly rendered acting. Uh, there's a scene where Matelli, who's the racist old uh, Italian American cop played by Anthony Quinn and Pope, who's the, uh, the Offutt Koto character inform uh, a woman that her husband has been killed. And it's, it's a moment where the monster that has been Matelli, the Anthony Quinn police captain character, reveals a different side and where Yafet Koto is exposed to things that his young police captain hasn't yet seen firsthand. Um, this scene with the great Paul Benjamin, who's one of those actors I spoke of, who's, whose credits and career span so many impressive things and turns in, you know, a incredible performance in this otherwise middling kind of over the top black exploitation film that has a lot more going for it than the typical film of the time. Paul Benjamin has this scene and I'm going to play you here with his girlfriend character. He's one of the low-level street folks who have ripped off the drug money and has the mob after him, has the cops after him. He has the black gangsters after him. And here he is explaining his reasons for turning to this. Must have gone crazy. Maybe. What we won, Gloria. We won. I didn't want to kill nobody. It wasn't in the plan. Give it back. I'd rather see you in jail than dead. I could see you. They ain't executed nobody in 10 years. Get the mob off of your ass and give Look, them back the money. I can't give the mob back the five men I shot. Are the cops back there, too? They don't make deals. Money you know. talks. The dead are dead, but you can deal with Gloria, I always figured you a step and a half ahead of the pack. But now you're coming on like all the other dumb broads. You don't stand a chance. I ain't giving nothing back. You hear? Not one dime. You don't stand a chance of living out the week. 
What do you mean we don't stand a chance of living out the week? We didn't stand a chance of spotting that Cadillac they come riding up in, but we did. You know, we didn't stand a chance of being the same fat-faced accountant I'd recognized, but it was. You see, like, like not a chance in the hell of walking into that room and coming out of life, much less with 300,000. But we did. And now you're talking about we don't have a chance of living out the week. You know that, do you? I mean, no chance at all. Well, I'm rolling. You see, I made my point ten times today, and I still got the dice, and I'm going to keep on rolling. Yeah, all right. At first, you told me not to try it, you see, but you was wrong, dead wrong. Until six o'clock this evening, what was sure for me? Hmm? I'll tell you what. Prison. Back in the giant again, beating my putt in my hand, you know, outside in some asshole job like a, a janitor or a porter, you know, cleaning up after some goddamn white man. You see, that was sure. That was dead sure. You'd have gotten a job sooner or later. Look at me, huh? Look at me! You're looking at a 42-year-old ex-con with no schooling, no trade, and a medical problem. Now, who the hell would want me for anything but washing cars or swinging a pick? You gotta get your mind out of that white woman's dream. This is an incredible scene, incredibly acted by Paul Benjamin and Norma Donaldson. I mean, two incredible actors. And it echoes what, what the words that Jackie Brown speaks in Jackie Brown, right? Or, or more pointedly, the words that the white cop threatening Jackie Brown at the beginning of the film confronts her with, which is, you know, if I was a 44-year-old black woman with uh, a record, I wouldn't be copying such a shitty attitude here. And these are the sentiments. I mean, this is, this is the, the, the way in which some aspects of Across 110th Street, the film, transcend what it really is. Um, it contains the social commentary and the truthfulness that is kind of undercut by plenty of other aspects of the glorification of whatever is going on. Now, what's fascinating and what I could not find out is I know that the film Across 110th Street had original songs composed by Bobby Womack and that it had a score composed by uh, another musician of note, more of a jazz composer, trombonist, and arranger named J.J. Johnson. And I think, this is complete speculation, but I think you can hear in the instrumentation what I'm going to demonstrate here. Because the version of 110th Street that's used in Jackie Brown is not the same version that you hear in the film across 110th Street. Here's how it opens. This is, this is the use of the film in its, op this is the use of the song in the film's opening moments. And it has a completely different orchestration. This is more scored, right? 
I think this is the work of J.J. Johnson, the film's composer, who composed the non-song aspects of the film's music. Because to me, this is the work of an arranger and a composer much more than a songwriter, as talented as Bobby Womack is. The string arrangements. And I think when you hear the song kick in, I hear more horn instrumentation. Which I think, for a trombonist like J.J. Johnson, that makes sense, right? You hear all these horns. There's kind of an interesting tell, um, which maybe I didn't notice that until just now. So maybe this is part of the mystery solved, if I'm correct here. Let me see if I can find it. So it says in the credits, it says musical score composed by, says musical score composed and conducted by J.J. Johnson. Title song composed by Bobby Womack and J.J. Johnson. Additional songs composed by and all songs performed by Bobby Womack. Now, I think in the orchestration of this title song version, you can hear the reliance on brass instruments, horns, trombones, trumpets. You don't have any of that at all in the version that's played in Jackie Brown, which I think is the superior version of the song. It's the more funky, kind of period-specific version. But I haven't been able to find out why there are these multiple versions or even who played on them other than um, the little, t- the only reported personnel in the uh, title track is the legendary bass player Carol Kay from the Los Angeles studio musician collective known as The Wrecking Crew. And if you're not familiar with The Wrecking Crew, There's a great documentary that's made by the son of one of the members of The Wrecking Crew called The Wrecking Crew. And if, like me, you love stories about studio musicians, it's an essential documentary. So I think it's Carol Kay playing bass on both of these versions of Across 110th Street, which is a pretty cool detail. But I don't know why there are these different versions other than you have this composer who is doing incidental music for the film, and maybe this was the orchestrated version. There's yet a third version that's played over the end credits of Across 110th Street, which is yet different again. There's this awful shootout that takes place. 
is like yet another version. Cross the hundred and ten street. Maybe again with the horns, we have another tell of the influence of the trombonist, orchestrator, and arranger, J.J. Johnson. I don't know. Uh, but that is part of kind of the mystery that someone needs to solve in terms of this iconic song, which deserves to have all of its uh, information known. So the film itself... Uh, it was kind of funny. I guess Anthony Quinn was originally an executive producer and it wasn't going to act in the film. And he wanted either John Wayne or Kirk Douglas to play the role of the racist police captain Matelli. Uh, but both of those passed on the role, as did Burt Lancaster. So Quinn ended up having to take the part. And he's quite good in it, I have to say, for this kind of monster part. Um, he does give you more than just racist police captain. He does show you without indicating too broadly how this job has chewed this man up, how it has solidified, perhaps, inclinations of thoughts towards black people that he might have had. But it also shows him as an effective police officer, someone who is respected on the street as much as he's feared, even as his tactics contribute to the continued problems that he is policing. And all of that's kind of subtly portrayed for a movie of this type. Um, and then Yafat Koto, you know, uh, and this must be fairly early on in his career. I'm not sure what his first film appearances were, but, uh, looks like he, yeah, this is pretty close. I mean, he's got some credits, uh, starting in 68 kind of bartender roles, uh, incidental roles, but certainly this is kind of the bigger, uh, film role for him of the time. Anthony Franciosa, I have to say, is terrible as, as the Nick DeSalvio Italian mobster character. He comes across particularly poorly, uh, just not of the same level of his scene partners. Um, Richard Ward, he's this incredible gravel-voiced actor, uh, plays, you know, one of the black gangsters in charge of Harlem. He plays Doc Johnson. And he's got this unforgettable voice. And Franciosa is just so over the top and kind of hilariously so. So after Bobby Womack recorded this, these versions of these songs, just to wrap up here, and after the titillating episodes involving uh, <laughs> Sam Cooke's widow and other issues that start presenting themselves in Bobby's life. Um, he, he then gets married to another woman who's 19 years old, Regina. And they have three children. Uh, they have Truth Bobby, 
and they have another son named Bobby Truth, and they have a daughter named Gina Ray. Um, they have like Regina is in this documentary that was done by the BBC. I'm not sure when, maybe in the middle 2000s. But another tragedy befell Bobby and Regina here, um, which Truth Bobby, their four-month-old son, uh, died. And as Bobby tells the story in his autobiography and in a couple of interviews, um, I'm just going to quote him because I don't want to offer any undue speculation here. So I'm going to quote him from an interview that he'd done with WENN explaining the death of his four-month-old son, which he also gets into in his book. You can read that in his own words too. He says, quote, I lost a son, which was my fault. And the only reason I can talk about it now is because I know what I'm saying. I'm not hiding behind anything. I came in one night from a convention and I was telling my lady, baby, you got to get up. I got something to show you. And she said, can we do this tomorrow? You know, the baby. I said, that little baby can't move. He can't even walk. He's taken five minutes to hold his head up. What he means and what he's trying to say here is he put, he didn't listen to his wife who said, we need to check on the baby. And instead he told her stories revolving around this music convention he had just come back from. And when he went in, to check on the baby, the baby had fallen between the wall and the bed and had died. And Womack says that the death of this child caused him to go even further into a drug addiction that had already gotten hold of him by this point, which is probably, what, 76? Yeah, 1975. You know, cocaine, um, and so unimaginable, right? And before this, speaking of tragedies, before he got married to the 19-year-old Regina Banks in 1975, his brother Harry was fatally stabbed in 1974 by his girlfriend in a jealous rage. Now, as Bobby again tells this story, she had found another woman's belongings in a clo in a room that that he was he Harry was staying at in Bobby Womack's house and she flew into a jealous rage and stabbed him in the neck with a steak knife and killed him and it turned out that the the belongings the female clothing that she had found in his room that she believed indicated he was cheating on her actually belonged to a girlfriend of Bobby's. So two children, a brother, you know, these are part of the ripples that can cascade out from fame of any kind. It doesn't always get talked about. It doesn't always get reported. It doesn't, we don't lead with these things. We lead with the stardom. We lead with, wow, the power of the voice it's hard not to have our, our eyes and our heart turned toward the emotion of the music and the, the ability for the voice to carry that emotion forward and to sometimes romanticize horrible occurrences like this 
which can be viewed as the product of selfish behavior of the show business person, right? I'm involved in all of this stuff. And these are the things that happen to these people that get caught up in my wake. And you can read about this. And I've talked about this many, many times. The greatest and the saddest and the most harrowing examples are the Brando story as told by Peter Manso in the biography of Marlon Brando and the amount of death and suicides that, that trail in his wake and in Goralnik's two-volume biography of Elvis Presley, in which Elvis himself is one of the people who suffers the most from his own fame, at least. I mean, when I say at least, there are other people that suffer, but he's the one who did the majority of the damage to himself. Bobby's story is a little bit more complicated. At this time, he also had become friends with Sly Stone, and he told Rolling Stone in 1984, quote, I was really off into the drugs by then, blowing as much coke as I could blow and drinking, smoking weed, taking pills, doing that all day, staying up seven, eight days. Me and Sly were running partners. Uh, now, he played on Sly's uh, There's a Ride Going On album and many other things as well. So Bobby's... Um, Bobby's book is one of those books that taken at face value tends to ascribe a lot of the difficulties suffered by the author to be either the fault of other people or happenstance. It reminds me a little of Little Stevens' memoir, oddly, even though Little Stevens' memoir doesn't contain a ninth of the harrowing details that, that Bobby's does. But I heard Little Steven on the Left Sets podcast do a great interview with Bob Left Sets about his life and career. And I was so taken with how he was telling the story that I said, you know, I've got to read this book. So I got his memoir and I had a complete opposite reaction to the memoir. I was so turned off by the memoir because it was so self-servingly one-sided. Like this guy, to hear him tell it, invented everything having to do with anything successful in the history of the music business going back to 1960. And by the way, started, you know, uh, all the successful radio formats that we enjoy, and, and, and. And I just kind of found it hard to take at face value. Um, so Bobby's book does kind of gloss over some of these heartbreaking details that you can read elsewhere about some of the tragedies suffered by his friends and family members. And as a result of him being self-admittedly out of his mind on drugs while trying to, to be a husband, a father, a band member, all of these things. But he's got some amusing anecdotes as well. Uh, for instance, he claims to be the inspiration for I this. Do a song of great social and political import. It goes like this. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Well, speaking of voices, holy hell, Janis Joplin, <laughs> Jesus. She probably could sing that part that uh, Bobby sang that Mick couldn't really quite uh get to. But anyway, he tells in his memoir that, and it's, I guess it's true that he was with Janis Joplin on the day she died. Uh, he was in the studio with her because uh, she was looking for songs. And he says in his book that he drove her back to her hotel and he had a new Mercedes. 
and that in the car she she sang the first line of the song and then told Bobby, don't take me to the hotel, drive me right back to the studio, I have to cut this song right now. That's his version of the story. But if you look in the Wikipedia version of the song, there is a little bit more of a annotated version where uh, Janice was at a bar and was with numerous other scenesters and was doing some kind of impromptu spoken word thing. Um, and that there's a song written by Michael McClure, who's a San Francisco bee poet, that said, come on, God, and buy me a Mercedes-Benz. So she heard someone singing that at this hootenanny, and then she began to sing it and started riffing on lyrics. And then Bob Newworth copied the lyrics onto bar napkins and um, then sang it that night at a concert at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. That's what she says. That's what Wikipedia says. Bobby says that she rode with him in his Mercedes-Benz 600 and came up with it there. That's kind of the, that's kind of the stuff you can, <laughs> you can hear of. Now, Bobby Womack also wrote this song for you Yacht Rock aficionados. George Benson's iconic Breezin. Wait for it. It's coming. faces this place that you would expect if you listen to something as greasy and in the pocket as that groove. George Benson's Breezin, written by Bobby Womack. I mean, Bobby Womack's stuff goes on and on. It's like he played with Ray Charles. He was in, had this amazing stint in Wilson Pickett's band, which is a really funny section of the book. Sly Stone, as I said, uh, with There's a Riot going on. You know, he had a fascinating, long, long career and wrote a hell of a lot of amazing songs and all of it tied up in this, in this song. I think you can hear much of this pathos and, and heart and hope and cynicism and belief all tied up in across 110th street. So thus concludes my three part Jackie Brown expanded cinematic podcasting universe. I'm going to be moving on to other uh, films as I talked about, but I wanted to cover this and, and maybe inspire you to dive in a little bit to, you know, the Bobby Womack essentials, the Sam Cooke essentials. Um, read his book if you're so inspired. You can also just watch the 55-minute BBC kind of shorthand version, which includes a lot of great talking heads, Ronnie Wood, uh, Regina, Bobby himself was alive at the time. Um, watch the movie, watch across 110th street. Oh, the thing I got to mention about the movie, I'm sorry. I would be remiss not to mention this because it's one of the most amazing aspects of the movie is that this film in 1972 has this really incredible location work that I was kind of like 
you know, you, you kind of watch it and it just sort of goes by you. But then when I started paying attention, I was like, how the hell did they do this in 72? It's, it's really shot on location um, in a way that felt really different. And it turns out that the secret to this was that the director, Barry Shear, had worked with this legendary location shooting expert uh, who is an Egyptian producer, cinematographer, and filmmaker named Fuad Said. And Fuad Said, who's still alive, I would love to talk to him, he invented something called the Cinemobile, which is a mobile movie studio, which he used when he worked on the TV series, I Spy. And basically this was the precursor to the location truck where he took a Ford Econoline uh, truck and basically adapted it so that it had everything you would need to shoot on location. Generators, cameras, audio equipment, and he made it so that he could load it onto a plane and fly it somewhere. And this was a this was a big development at the time because it allowed film production to get mobile and a little bit more fleet of foot. And I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but the other thing that happened that kind of revolutionized the way this film was able to be shot was that there was a new camera that came out. So for you camera nerds out there, it's the 35BL from Airy was a new camera. It's called the Airyflex 35BL. And this was the first film to use that camera. And what's funny, I guess in retrospect, is you have Jack Priestley, who's the cinematographer. He says of this camera, quote, it's a real winner. It's as quiet as a church mouse and it has great flexibility, especially as it weighs only 33 pounds. <laughs> I mean, what is a camera today, uh, you know, a 16K camera probably weighs two pounds. Your phone has greater power and ability than this 33-pound Aeroflex camera had at the time. Uh, but that's what they were dealing with. And because it was light and what's known as self-blimped, which is a great little piece of film industry terminology, it means that they could shoot in these tight kind of single-room locations that they were using throughout the film. And this gives the movie such a unique feeling for its time because it's not shot on sets that are built to try to approximate these locations. It's really shot on the gritty streets of New York City, Harlem, 1972. And you can feel that. And that's part of what lends the film its power is it has an almost documentary-like documenting of the surrounding areas and the people that are populating the streets. And so that's part of what's really fascinating about across 110th Street, the film, is that this camera is part of the technological advancement of the time that allowed the film to be shot in places like I just played you that scene, the great Richard Benjamin scene. Well, that's in a basement of an apartment building with uh, electrical meters and other sorts of like infrastructural equipment. And it's shot in really, really close quarters. Um, and what a lot of people don't think about is at the time in the 60s and the 70s, a lot of film cameras were so noisy that that's why you had a lot of overdubbed dialogue. Because it'd be very difficult to mask the sound of the camera operating. Hence, the need for the camera to be blimped, which is placed in some sort of a soundproof thing, some kind of a pouch, I would imagine. 
And this camera was self-blimped, so it was quiet, and it could be brought into these small spaces. And you'll notice that if you watch the film of Across 110th Street, which is also just a great, darkly documented portrayal of New York City in the 70s and the issues that these communities were facing. Uh, and it's worthwhile. You know, it, it, it has so much going for it, even as it does devolve as these types of films tend to into epic shootouts of one form or another. So I didn't want to pass by without mentioning the work of Fuad Said because he's an important part of why that film worked so well. Anyway, that's it for this episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting the pod. I really appreciate it. And I'll be back next week with another episode.